What's going on, everyone? This is Chad Sheen here with my lovely co-host, Melissa Hayden. This is episode number two of the Primal Performance Podcast. Melissa, what's going on? Not much. Beautiful Saturday, Sunday morning, Saturday morning, Saturday, Saturday morning that we're recording this. Yeah. Um, this being the second episode, I just want to thank everyone uh, or for those who reached out and had feedback and anything to say. And even just for watching that first episode, uh, a lot of interesting feedback. You know, it's one of those things when you when you're new to something. Um, and you go back and listen to the recording of the first podcast. It's really freaky to listen to yourself speak. Uh, well, it's, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who has a, um, she has luminous recovery yoga podcast. And one of the things that she said, um, was if your first few podcasts don't embarrass you, then you're, you're not going about it the right way. So I think it's like, Anytime you start something new, there's going to be things to figure out and um, things to learn. So it's just, but we can spend, we can get into that like mindset where like we overthink everything or we can just do it and learn from it. And uh, yeah, thank everybody for listening in. And it's exciting where um, I've had several people reach out and I know you have too, who um, gave us different topics to cover. Um, several several people reached out on disordered eating um, and the health and fitness industry, which I, that's going to be a really important uh, conversation, which I'm excited to get into. But yeah, a lot of good stuff to look forward to. And, uh, you know, also that first podcast being a really good baseline metric for, uh, you know, the future. Uh, mm -hmm. We can only get better from here. So again, thank you everyone uh, for listening in. Um, to the first podcast. So today's episode is going to be on primal pattern movements. So this is actually, it's it's a neat story. It's kind of how I started my uh, journey in the fitness space. The primal pattern movements, the thoughts and principle of them was created by a physiotherapist by the name of Paul Check who's based out of San Diego, California. I believe he's still based out of San Diego, California. He's, he's got a rich history in physical therapy, strength conditioning, uh, holistic health style coaching. He's a pioneer in the industry. Uh, if you look him up, he's got a uh, institute by the name of the Czech Institute, also based out of California, where he coaches and mentors uh, masters in uh, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, nutrition, etc. This is one of Paul Check's original principles and his teachings. Uh, you can find more of the information on these primal pattern movements uh, in his book, Movement That Matters, and also How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, which are both incredible uh, pieces of uh, literature. And uh, he's a wealth of information. So uh, what we're speaking about today is designed uh, through Paul Check's teachings. Uh, so the primal pattern movements, what are they? Well, it's the hinge, the push, the lunge, the squat, gait, pull, twisting, and rotation. So we have seven primal pattern movements. Melissa, do you want to talk more on your thoughts there? Yeah, well, I mean, first, Paul Check is an incredible resource, and I'm actually a Czech Institute level one uh, 
health coach in addition to having certifications through his through the Czech Academy in scientific back training, um, scientific core training, and then you're working on the shoulder and spine. I'm working right on now, sh- shoulder and additional spinal course, um, and there's a third one that I'm working on. Um, but what what I like about doing this is the second episode is that the podcast is Primal Performance Podcast, and this is really kind of the backstory to where that comes from. And foundationally, I think these, and I'll let you speak to the movement patterns, but I think in the fitness industry, and I would definitely argue in the yoga industry, we've gone away from these movement patterns. There are some like, I remember, you know, when you go to a gym and there are certain things that you see, like, you know, standing on a BOSU ball, doing like bicep curls, like it's certainly going to be interesting on social media, but like how functional is that in your everyday life? How applicable, how useful is it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there are things that happen on a yoga mat that could actually make us better at moving in our everyday life. But there's a lot, especially when you connect it back to these primal pattern movements, the hinge, the push, the lunge, squat, gait, pull, twist, and rotation. But, you know, there are some things in the yoga space that are so far away from that, that actually put us more in harm's way than it does reinforcing movement patterns that make us better moving off of our mat. So I'm, I'm really excited to um, explore these, these topics today. Yeah, this is how I came up with my name uh, years ago. And going through Paul Check's teachings and seeing his videos that were free online, I didn't have any money. I paid for a cheap certification. Uh, and I, a lot of the things I was learning was either through books uh, or YouTube videos and uh, blogs and vlogs online. And a lot of Paul Check's teachings speak to these seven primal pattern movements. Uh, and it's actually what gave me the thought to um, build out a platform and a small business that's focused on this, the primal movement patterns, a, a holistic approach to human movement. You know, through the the rise of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we see, see this uh, rise in Nautilus machines and Cybex machines and um, lever arm machines such as hammer strength, where even in athletic populations, unfortunately, but most commonly in gen pop or general population, we see the use of these isolated machines. Is our body intended to move like that? Like, are we supposed to be isolating muscles in this fashion? So let me ask you a question. Do we operate in this uni or single joint motor pattern during our daily living? No, we don't. So why are we supposed to be training like that? Why are we training athletes specifically and isolating them in this or pigeonholing them in this small space of isolated machines, single joint exercises, where instead, whether it's a field sport, a court sport, we're in the pool, or we're hitting the asphalt and we're running miles, we're never functioning in this single plane or single joint movement. It's, you know, when, as you were just talking, I almost started laughing because I think it was either Paul Check or it was Dr. Jordan Shallows that was talking about these isolated movements. And they do, it's not, I don't think what we're saying is they don't have a place for it. 
it's just there's there's there is some consideration around around it like <laughs> i remember it checkered dr shallows was like you know you have these big bodybuilders who might be able to squat you know five six seven hundred pounds or whatever but they don't have the mobility because they've done this isolation work to even like, get themselves under the heavy bar and so like the question is, are they functional? Great, you can squat, but you can't get yourself under the bar. Well, you know, there's something to be said about what the men and women do in bodybuilding. It's actually pretty incredible to pack on all of that muscle. Is that necessarily natural and the way nature intended yeah, our body to be? That's a that's up for that's enough for a that's different a whole different, different discussion on another day. But usually we see them in machines. Rather than squatting, we're seeing a lot of these um, so-called bodybuilders in Smith machines, uh, in uh, leg presses, belt squats, because the global approach and functionality of the body is lacking there to get underneath the bar and use the proprioceptive and um, uh, vestibular system to uh, place us under a bar, maintain balance, maintain center of mass, and descend into a heavy back squat and come up properly without... Um, any issues? I think actually you just touched on a, a, on a point that I would ask that you expand on, because I think it's actually for general population, for those people who are listening, maybe not understanding the importance and the relevance of what you were just talking about is this proprioception and the role the vestibular system plays in movement. Would you, would you want to expand on that for like a lay person? Yeah. So, you know, I our balance centers, our vestibular system, our, our eyes, the posterior portion of our brain, the cerebellum, uh, and our inner ear centers are all working in combination together to maintain our body's awareness of what's around us. Uh, standing upright, we it's a very complex system. We're using our slow twitch, slow twitch postural muscles to maintain an upright posture. Uh, we are using our eyes to give us feedback and information about what's around us, what's happening, what is our environment, and then our inner ear unit to uh, collect um, audio feedback of also what's around us, uh, to maintain balance, maintain posture. And then all of this information is sent to our nervous system and fed back into our musculature to, uh, create movement. We have unconscious and conscious movement. And that'd be actually a really cool discussion on another podcast to get into uh, the nervous system and the role it plays in musculoskeletal um, disorders and the uh, axial skeleton and more of the biomechanics uh, vasomotor system. That's a really neat um, discussion that we can have one day if that's what people are interested in listening to. Um, but yeah, these these seven primal pattern movements are a great approach. We want to see these seven primal pattern movements in every single training session. Oh, one. This is one of the very uh, specific approaches I take when writing programming is in one training session. And this isn't a hard thing to do to create a, a, a training session with all seven. You can, I, we can get all seven of these in just the dynamic warm up, moving into our light implement power or strength exercises before heavy lo loading. Um, but what these seven movements um, or mechanical uh, postures are relaying is what we do in our day-to-day -day life, our daily activities. Um, you know, for example, 
just think, let's say we're in a kitchen and we're cooking, right? Um, we have to hinge over or bend over at L5S1 sacrum to grab something at the cabinet, right? We need to uh, squat down to grab something off the floor, or we need to squat down to also grab something from a lower cabinet. Uh, we need to uh, pull a pan off of the stove, or we need to scrub dishes. So we're pushing and we're pulling. These are just little micro movements. Yes, I know this isn't necessarily uh, what we're talking about in a training perspective, um, but for, no matter who you are, whether you are an infant or uh, a toddler, or you are a 80 year old female or male, most of these, for most people, this is these are all very common movement patterns that we see. So the point here is to make sure that you are performing these exercises or performing these movement patterns uh, on a um, daily or multi-week basis in your training. When, as you were just talking, and this is, I was looking at, um, you know, we obviously we have notes for this podcast, this primal. Um, primal pattern movements. And then as you had been talking about the vestibular system, I think one of the things for people to keep in mind is actually the vestibular system. While some trainers may not talk, and I know the yoga community doesn't talk a whole lot about it, but that the role that that system plays in movement, and then these primal movement patterns, they go hand in hand, because at the end of the day, your vestibular system, what you were speaking to is so it governs other systems of your body. When that system um, senses dysfunction, it can cause pain, it can cause other dysfunction, which can then um, impact these, these movement patterns that you're talking about, because, and I'm keying into the word primal, this, that the function of that system from the function of that system was more about keeping us safe and alive. And so each of those movement patterns had a role in basically staying alive. You know, the gate, the, their gate has different like walking, sprinting to get away from a predator. Um, they all have that role. And so I think it's really an interesting connection between what you were talking about and these um, primal movement patterns. And the more that you pattern them into your training, they get ingrained in your nervous system so that when you're doing them in your everyday life, like you said, bending over to pick up a pan, you can better tolerate maybe less than optimal different, form. Yeah, different stresses that we're opposed mm -hmm. to in our daily environments. You hear a lot of people, um, you know, sedentary people, they move, go, go to move a couch, whether they're cleaning or they're moving out of their current home and they go to move a couch and they throw their back out. Right. Well, because one, they're not training under load or they're not training, twisting and anti-rotation, uh, mechanisms within their training. You know, you said the word ingrained. So these seven primal pattern movements, the, the the use of the word primal is because these were ingrained through evolution, um, through the Homo sapiens uh, in our physiology. The, these movement patterns are ingrained in our uh, nervous system, our physiology, and that's that's why we see infants as they begin to crawl and then slowly become bipedal. And able to maintain that balance as they're in their later stages of development in the later months of their or earlier months of their life. Um, these are things we're seeing in the most elite athletic populations. We're seeing in 
infants that are beginning to crawl and then walk, toddlers, and then anywhere between that. Uh, so this is why it's so important to have these mechanisms trained uh, so they're almost unconscious. We can tap into them unconsciously when, when we need to. Um, so, you know, whether it's in a workplace, in an um, athletic population or gen general population, all of these movement patterns should show up in some way, shape or form in a uh, athletic or uh, training session on a weekly or daily basis. And to your point, you, you brought up one end of the spectrum, just as important as, because all of us, whatever age bracket you tend to be, and we're all getting older. And what one of the biggest issues that people as they're getting older face are these injuries like a fall and they can't get up, they break a hip. And so when you train and you work on these patterns and you put some muscle mass, muscle mass on, we're actually going to be better able to tolerate aging. Yes. And I think, you know, like we talk about squatting, are we going to put, you know, do you have to be fully loading a back squat or a front squat? No, but like, do you want to practice that movement pattern so you can get yourself off the toilet? Yes. You know, so they, these movements are, um, we see them in, you know, from infancy moving on, but like just as important, if not maybe more important as we look out to how we're aging and how we're going to go through that process, how we use these um, patterns in helping people not just age well, but the like have better movement in those years. Yeah, most definitely. And before we even get into the loading specifically, we have to do this unloaded mm -hmm. and there are regressions and progressions to these body weight movements. Mm -hmm. uh, let's use the lunge. For example, when I have someone, when I'm working with someone, just by the way, they're walking into my office or they're, as they walk towards me, I can tell almost how capable are they in a, in a squat, in a lunge? What's, what's their gait look like? Are there imbalances? Do we see abnormalities in, in their gait cycle? Uh, and then from there, I can decide, okay, am I going to have them in the most regress form? Like I'll put them in a um, split stance with two dowel rods, dowel rod in each hand, and we're going to have them drop in, a, in the vertical plane in a vertical fashion uh, down into a, a lunge and then back up in the concentric phase. If they can't do that, then that's where we're starting, Right. And then as we progress, we can take one dowel, dowel rod away and then the next dowel rod, rod away. And then we can go into a static lunge stance. And then from there, we can progress into a walking lunge. But we need to make sure this person can, um, uh, you know, manage the, themselves and their, their awareness against the forces of gravity. That's so important, being able to manage movements and gravity and your center of mass before we start even thinking about loading and exercise. So for all of these, and for those that are listening, doing these seven primal pattern movements from a body weight perspective first, and make sure you have uh, the capacity to move through these motions uh, and these biomechanical movements efficiently and effectively and unconsciously before we get into <clears throat> Before we get into loading these these movements as drills and as exercises, especially as we begin to load more and more. Mm. 
Now, you know, as you were talking, like the body load, and that could be where yoga is, it could be a, a powerful tool in this with some exceptions. You know, there's like, when I think about a yoga practice, being able to pattern a hinge movement, which would be like going from a forward fold, standing up, that's a hinge movement. You know, a push movement would be something like a high plank, like that is very much a push movement. Your lunge, any split leg stance, um, crescent lunge, for example. A squat could be something that you pattern in chair pose. Gait, obviously, you would be, you can pattern that on the mat. You can uh, connect that again to a lunge. Your pull movements could be anything with your arms in any of the standing poses. And then twist and rotation, where yoga gets this a little bit off, is we try to drive flexibility and mobility in these twists and rotation when really what we want to be talking about is controlling movement and, and training, training that movement versus the depth of that movement. And I think giving people the ability to pattern those things on a yoga mat then gives them tools if they would want to go and, and load it in a gym, um, but to actually get better at those movements at that body weight level, which would be really, could be really powerful. I was just thinking that connection. No, and you know, you speaking to different postures in yoga, let's real quick kind of go through how we would cue for you in yoga and for me in a strength conditioning environment. How would you cue? Let's start with off the hinge. Well, gait's going to be different. Um, that's something that we're more so or more or less uh, an analyzing and picking apart. But let's let's go with our six others and get into uh, first the hinge, how would you cue a hinge in yoga? <laughs> well, way where we, people might common cue in yoga, which I would say is the, why I would argue against this. And given your background too, I'd love your thoughts, but this whole idea of roll up your spine, one vertebrae at a time, that is actually not patterning a hinge movement and more effective for me to, um, if you're in a forward fold going to stand up, Accuse, like, you know, push your hips forward, lift your chest up, using your glutes to power that movement versus rolling up one vertebrae. How about the, how about the, the act, the act of actually hinging? That's, you have to unlock your, so for in a yoga class, one of the things that happens is people are going to lock their knees and that's going to, um, eliminate some of the mobility that they have at the hip joint. So you have to cue the knee joint first so that your student can effectively move at the hip. Um, so, you know, a cue like soften your knees, hinge from your hips and fold forward could be as simple as that. I mean, could we go into a lot more detail on the yoga mat on a yoga mat? Yes. But like, we need to have really quick cues to get someone in and out of a. Sure. Oppose. Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, from my perspective, hinging, there's a couple of ways you can go about it. The first thing I'm going to do is tell them to bend forward or hinge without giving cues. That's my only cue. I want to say, you know, going through these, running this person through screening, whether it's a an FMS or just a super basic overhead squat assessment, or just going through these seven primal movements, that's that's kind of what I'm focusing on there. For the hinge specifically, let's just say, Bob, Bob, I want you to hinge forward or I want you to bend forward and just see how he manages that. From there, I'm going to analyze, okay, is he, is there a, 
a uh, increased kyphosis of the upper T-spine? Is he rounding through the, uh, you know, lower lumbars? Is that kyph um, lordotic curve decreasing? Uh, is he bending at his knees? Do we see a lack of hamstring flexibility? Uh, do I see a, a butt wink or the rounding of the sacrum in a posterior fashion? From there, I can give some tactile cues. Uh, so I can have them find their iliac crests and uh, at either side of their hip. And I can have them think of hinging from that axis, using that as the point of axis or point of rotation, and then hinging over that point. Uh, or what I, a, one that I really love actually is uh, grabbing a, uh, a power band or an elastic band that you see in any facility or most facilities and wrapping that band around their waist, standing behind them. And that band right at their ASIS, or um, if anyone doesn't know what an ASIS is, it's the two front bones of your hip at the anterior portion of your body. So place that band right around that ASIS and then pull just slightly, create a little bit of pressure or tension with that band um, pulling towards me uh, and then have them bend over, or hinge over while keeping their back straight. That's a, a common tactile cue that I'll use uh, for someone, uh, or verbally, uh, slight bending knees, sit your hips back and bend forward with your back straight. You, as you were talking about that, one of the things, so when we're talking about this in relationship to a yoga class, we're not going to have access to some of those bands, which is a great tool, but what you can do, what I've done. What before, about a yoga strap? Well, well, I'm not going to stand behind a student in a yoga class, but you can actually in a general population class, get people to take where you were talking about right underneath those two, the front um, hip bones. If you, if you slide your fingers down, you're going to get into the hip joint. And if you have, you know, soften your knees, now stick your butt back and press your fingers into your hip joint as you fold forward, stretch your chest forward, and you, they'll be able to feel the hip joint almost like soften. There'll be that space as they stick their butt back, stretch your chest forward and fold forward. And that's going to give them, that's going to, um, that might accomplish a similar action as the strap, just as a self-assist for the person. Absolutely. How about a push? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much around that. <laughs> Um, so if I am going to take someone into a high plank position, um, my first cue is actually, and I think this is a huge missing, I would say in the yoga and the fitness industry, you know, that I say this to you all the time when like, if you're training me or, or anytime we're in a gym together, nine out of 10 times, everybody's hands are internally rotated. Yeah. That intern. Why though? Why, There's no why, awareness. Why, why do you see an intern? Yeah. On, on top of that lack of awareness, look at our daily living and the postures that we sit in, whether we're seated all day, we're rounded over in this upper cross syndrome pattern where everything's internally rotated and we're flexed forward with that anterior deviation of the cervical flexors. This is all a common pattern that we're seeing, right? Oh, very much so. So you have your hands rotated forward, the fingers rotated in. So let's say your index and your middle fingers are are, are pointed in towards each other, um, which is going to give us internal rotation of the shoulder joint, which is not your most powerful We're or lacking, stable position. Lacking integrity and strength there. Yeah. yeah. So the first cue that I would give is to get people's hands, probably not even directly underneath their shoulders, especially for people who are 
rounded forward, but you, a lot of people are tighter in their shoulders. Going directly underneath their shoulders is too narrow for a push movement. And so taking your hands underneath your shoulders, maybe a little bit wider, turn your fingers out, get them externally rotated. Um, and then as you push, like, it's almost like you drive your hands into the floor, but pull your shoulder blades in towards your spine so that you give a little bit more stability to, um, to the shoulder joint. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Retract that, those scapulae, um, create that rigidity through the spinal erectors. Uh, another thing I would add, it's not much to add there. That was excellent is just breathing mechanics too. Um, you know, breathing into the diaphragm, creating a nice stable inner core unit. Um, so that when we're doing in these frontal plane or pushing postures, uh, we have a stability through the entire upper trunk. Well, what you're speaking to too, it, which will be, I think we're going to need to do a series on, on breathing mechanics because it, the other cue that, um, coaches and yoga teachers miss is when people are in a high plank or low plank, the head is collapsed forward mm. and that is going to pull the shoulder blade up and up and over so that you actually, and that's going to, what that does is it also shortens your pec minor. So you're going to have restricted breathing. So then that, and this is like, when we talk about all of the systems, that's actually going to send your, that's going to bring the sympathetic system more to the forefront. And like you, you might not have a stable system because we're negatively impacting breath and you therefore don't have access to a success, a, a very stable or successful push pattern. So lining the head up like neutral neck, whether it's draw your chin back towards your throat, press the back of your skull towards the ceiling. If as coaches and as trainers, we're not managing that we're, we're actually training dysfunction into that push movement. If you're letting people's head heads collapse down. Because yeah. then the other thing, especially whether it's a push, so this shows up in the fitness community and the yoga industry. If we're training a push-up in yoga, it's high plank into low plank, right? If your hands are internally rotated and your head is collapsed in, one of the common cues is like pull your, you know, hug your elbows towards your rib cage. Well, they can't. If your fingers are rotated in, when you bend your elbows, which way are they going to go? Not in. They're also not ever hugging in towards your rib cage they're stuffed in the glenoid fossa so it's a, well, <laughs> it's a bad cue well it is well that don't get me started on that one but as far as the yoga community goes but if you at least turn their fingers out you have a better shot of getting their elbows to track in a healthier direction than if their fingers are rotated in so if you you have to set like you might know where the movement pattern that you want your client or your student to take, but you have to set them up for success. And I think there are a lot of fitness coaches and definitely yoga teachers where we're missing some of these fundamental movements. And then we're trying to take them into these, these patterns, um, like a push pattern. And we're just training dysfunction rather than stability and strength. So before we get into the lunge, I, I want to go to the pool because yeah. The pushing and pulling no, it's good. go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So what we were just talking about there with different postures uh, and imbalances, we see a lot more pushing than we do pulling. Mm. So this is uh, something we're going to get into in depth in episode three for our posture and desk ergonomics mm -hmm. and workspace uh, specifics. But pulling is really just as important as pushing is, mm -hmm. right? So there should be whether if there's an imbalance, then the antagonist needs to be trained more and vice right. versa. Right. So uh, pulling, let's get into pulling. How would you cue pulling? And I know yoga is a little different because 
there's a lot less pulling than there is pushing in the yoga practice, but give me, um, kind of explain yourself in terms of a pull, how that can show up in yoga and how you would cue that. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I, you know, I am very direct in managing my yoga students or in class is like you actually what they need to do because power vinyasa yoga is a very much push-based practice and if you're doing it every day you are missing out on those pull movements and they should be getting into the gym and they should be working with weights they should be adding load whole different podcast but that is what that's one of the things i'm actually going to cue during the class but what we can do is train some of the movements so like in a pose like chair, crescent lunge, anything with your arms going either out in front or up overhead, we can train the movement where we wake up the muscles in the back body by really intentionally drawing the shoulder blades in. So that pull movement of retracting your shoulder blades in towards your spine. So, in, in, but there has to be something that happens first, right? Because your shoulder, the, the action of these pull movements, the shoulder, the scapula, as it articulates on the rib cage are directly influenced by our breathing mechanics. So if you haven't handled your core first, we're going to have a negative impact on those pull movements. So let's say someone is in a pose like chair, which is kind of like a squat. If their pelvis is tipped forward anteriorly and their ribs are flared out, we're messing with their breathing mechanics. So you first want to lock the core down. So lift the front of your pelvis towards your belly button, draw your, down draw your ribs, you know, down towards your belly button, lock that in now soften your elbows or bend your elbows. So you almost make like goalpost or cactus arms and pull your shoulder blades in towards your spine, not pinch your shoulder blades together. Cause that can create dysfunction too. But everybody, right. When we're talking about creating like an inclusive cue that everybody can do, everybody can draw their shoulder blades in towards their spine, right? Like that's an action that we can train in the body. Um, so that would be a cue that I could use in chair. I can use in, you know, anytime that their arms go up overhead, but I have to first handle the core. Then I can train I can discuss the cue to create that pull movement. I like that a lot. And, you know, training the pull, maintaining a rigid posture, using the spinal erectors to maintain that posture. From there, we're allowing that shoulder complex to move freely, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can train different movement patterns, whether the elbows are flared, whether the elbows are tucked further in towards the midline. Uh, there's many different ways in terms of targeting different muscle groups and patterning there, uh, but allowing once that spine and uh, is spine is rigid and those breathing mechanics are efficient, we're then able to allow that scap scapula, clavicle, and humeral complex to move in the intended way uh, or well, it's one of the things that Paul check. It's one of my I have a lot of favorite quotes from him, but one of the things that I think has really influenced, especially the way that I teach movement or especially yoga is you have to stabilize to the spine first before you can actually effectively move your limbs. And 
it would be a fun podcast to do because you hit on it earlier where we have a lot of muscles that are not in our voluntary control because their job is so important. The brain is like, you don't get to actually <laughs> handle this. We have to stabilize to the spine first, activate that inner core unit before you can move your shoulder, your hips, your, your legs and arms effectively. Yeah. You didn't brush your teeth this morning. So why are you in control of your breathing muscles? Right? Yeah. <laughs> I brush my teeth this morning. Uh, so, all right. Brushing my teeth. So we did the hinge. We did the push. We did the pull. Let's talk lunging. <laughs> um, so crescent lunge is a really, so crescent lunge, I think is, it shows up in the fitness space too, because it's, it, it's a lunge, a forward lunge where both coaches and yoga teachers mess with this is we overemphasize, um, hyper extension of that back hip. Um, I think we need to shorten everybody's stance, load the front leg and then soften your back knee create more of a neutral pelvis. So again, the cue that lift the front of your pelvis up towards your belly button, draw your rib cage down towards your pelvis, locking that there first, then you can play with how straight your back leg goes. When we go too far in that split lunge stance, we're taking, which this is a, a function of gait, right? Let's say your right leg is forward in a lunge right side of your pelvis is going to come forward. Your left leg is back. Left side of the pelvis will go backwards. Your pelvis is built for that. But yoga especially, and when um, coaches are working on like stretching people out, the cue that I hear all the time is like, press your left hip forward or something like that. And it's like, well, now we're going into hyperextension and we're starting to put some compression into the lumbar spine and you're, you're doing reverse forces into the SI joint. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's very little movement that that SI joint allows. So usually we see compensation, whether it's at the FA joint or it's at the lower lumbar, whether it's L5, S1, L4, L5. Actually, that's something I think that would be important for you as a clinician to highlight, um, because I think coaches and yoga teachers kind of, this is where we get it wrong a little bit, is we're trying to drive mobility into the SI joint, and that's not the job of that joint. Yeah, uh, this is this is something that I struggle with specifically in uh, the curriculum at school, which is understandable because uh, from a chiropractic standpoint, the goal is to create motion in a joint so it moves freely and it's the way that it was intended to move. In today's time, we have, especially in sporting populations, whether let's just say in a strength athlete, uh, I don't want a ton of motion in my SI joints. I don't have low back pain. I have zero SI pain. And I also don't have any peripheral neuropathies that are sent down through my legs from an SI or a disc, disc lesion. So if I have zero pain and I'm moving the way I want to move with proper mobility, I find where I need the mobility, whether it's the hip, the ankle, the thoracic spine, optimally, right? But I, I don't necessarily need increased movement or excessive movement through the SI joints. And you know, people will palpate and they'll um, want to adjust the SIs. Oh, your SIs are like a brick wall. We we need to move them. We need to. I, I don't want. I don't want to create too much motion there at the SI joint. My hips move just fine without any um, imbalances or compensations. So let's keep it that way. We're going to have a guest sooner rather than later, Dr. Josh Brown, who will contribute to that conversation as well. Cause I know the three of us had ha have had um, 
some conversations around that that topic. And the job of the SI joint is not to be a mobile joint, in fact, because its job is to transmit forces when for gait. It's not for going into like full splits or or it shows up actually with in uh, females who have had kids where you've had some overstretching in the pelvic region and they now have SI dysfunction because we've overstretched that joint. We've driven too much flexibility or too much mobility into an area that's not supposed to, that's not its job. So I think that is something as trainers, coaches, um, yoga teachers is something that we want to consider when we're teaching something like a lunge. Yeah. yeah. Another thing to add there for lunging, and I touched on this a bit earlier, is um, regressions and progression. So I'd normally have someone start off in that static lunge position, a dowel rod in each hand to increase base support uh, and surface volume. And, you know, once they're able to complete that static lunge from the double dowel rod position, we can then progress that, take dowel rods away and eventually progress into walking lunges and loaded walking lunges. Um, also, you know, someone being able to um, maintain and operates against the forces of gravity and can have control over their center of mass is really important in a lunge because we're uh, decreasing um, stability. You know, we're splitting that surface volume up uh, so we can start off in a front foot elevated um, uh, back foot on the floor to a rear foot elevated, et cetera. Also looking at internal rotation of that back leg, some external rotation of the leg. What are, we, what are we doing with our our toes? Are all five toes grabbing the ground? Do we have contact with the ground from our that tripod foot? So the the big toe, the small toe, and the heel of the foot. So these are all the lunge is really specific, and there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, so all of these things need to be uh, taken into consideration. Talk about in a lunge, because this is something that shows up. I hear it both in yoga and actually in uh, like group exercise classes. Don't let your knee go past your ankle. Stack your knee directly over your ankle. Yeah, I would say this. Uh, take a video of you walking up the stairs. Let me know what happens to your knee. Right. And uh, yeah, so we're, so the thing is. So what our, happens to your knee? It, it goes past your toe. It goes yeah. past your toe. So unless we're in a state of rehabilitation, right? right? This is the same argument as isolated machines, right? Isolated machines can be used in a fashion for rehab. It can also be very specific for muscle imbalances, muscle hypertrophy um, to uh, decrease imbalances or manage imbalances, or can use be used for very specific sports such as uh, bodybuilding. Uh, or can be used for a, a well-designed fitness program and protocol where it's mixed in with both body weights, plyos, other functional athletic movements. Um, but you know, going back to uh, the lunge here and then the knees over the toes, um, I don't see anything that's wrong. You have to give me an argument as to why that knee shouldn't go over that toe. Oh no, I don't. I it may. I think what happens is trainers, coaches, yoga teachers, we, we don't want our students or our clients to get hurt, but we're going about it sort of in a misguided way. Unintentionally, we're, we're infusing this fear of movement into, um, into the space by saying, 
in order to protect your knee, stack it over your ankle or don't let it go past your toes. I'm also not going to coach to go over the toe either. There's, right. there's no need for that. I'm just not going to micromanage it. Sure. And, and again, just like we were talking about the hinge or the push or the lunge or the squat, we there's no need to cue before just watching. Shut up, let the athlete do what they do, and then we can manage and then we can assess. But right. first, just have the athlete or the, the individual that's in front of you squat or lunge and see how they manage, right? I'm way more concerned with, is your knee caving in or is it going too far out to the side? Correct. Because that's something now we can, that can speak to foot mechanics, that can speak to something going on in the hip, possibly even your back. Or the knee. Or, or your knee. And, or, and when we keep allowing our, our students to, to do that, then we're, we're driving dysfunction. But if your knee's tracking a little bit further of your ankle or behind it, if you're pain-free, I, I think that's... It's fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, last two, we have the squat and twisting slash rotation. What do you mm. want to say about the squat? So a common cue, and I'm going to use chair, the chair pose in yoga. You hear all the time, and you've been to yoga classes, like sit down deeper, sit deeper. Well, first we need to take a look at what is going to get in someone's way. And it's going to start in your feet. Like if you're lacking ankle mobility, hip mobility, thoracic spine mobility, you're not going to be able to sit deeper depending on how your hip joint is built. I think that um, we have to have all of that in consideration before we start dictating where someone's going to sit um, the depth of their squat, managing where their feet are, that kind of thing. Um, there's a, there's a lot to say about a squat. What do you want to say about it? Yeah. I mean, it's all context, yeah. right? So if I'm working with a strength athlete, okay, what is our goal? Are you a low bar? Are you a high bar squatter? Is this a power lifting event? Is this a Olympic weightlifting event? Olympic weightlifting, we're no doubt doing a high bar squat. If it's powerlifting, in most cases, we're doing a low bar squat. So the mechanics change there. Uh, the setup changes. The breathing mechanics almost stay the same, uh, but the uh, the setup and the posture changes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in a powerlifting event or uh, athlete, we're seeing a little bit of a wider stance. The, the goal here is to lift the maximum amount of weight in a single repetition with the least amount of mobility as possible. So we're hitting that 90 and then we're coming back up from parallel uh, to complete that lift. So low bar squat, wider base, a little more external rotation in most situations. We're sitting back, so we're using the glutes and the hamstring complex a little more than a quad dominant, but it's on an individual basis or context, right? Whereas Olympic weightlifters, you see these massive quads because they're more anterior. That um, bar is out in front of them from the clean jerk to the floor to a, a jerk uh, and or a snatch position. So we're much more anterior, anteriorly driven as an athlete for an Olympic weightlifting population. Um, Again, just like any of these other movement patterns, I have them squat before I give them any cues. I want to see how they manage that position, right? And that movement pattern. And then we assess and we break it down from there if need be. Uh, this is this is actually a prerequisite to a lunge though. So I would I would take a look at the squat before I do the lunge. 
If they can't squat, they're sure as hell not going to lunge. So let's see how they squat and they manage that position throughout the entire range of motion and then go from there. Uh, there is no one right or correct way to do a squat though. That is something I think that trainers and yoga, yoga teachers actually, we really want to hear that because we tend to look for these universal cues and we talk about the correct alignment. And it's that I think is the big connection where there is not one alignment cue or one way to do a squat that's going to work for everyone. Sure. We can have principles and we can have guidelines that we can be looking for, but it has to be adjusted to each individual's yeah. body. And for those listening, this isn't just speaking to a back squat or a front squat. This is speaking to a body weight squat, bilateral neutral stance. Mm -hmm. That's all we're speaking to right now. Because in a lot of athletic populations, I'm not having my athletes back squat. There's, I don't see the need for it. We can make strong, powerful legs in other positions. It's a great exercise, but it's not the end-all be-all for leg strength. Also, we see squatting in jumps, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a broad jump, a long jump. We're using a jump as a metric, a vertical jump. We're seeing a squat pattern in these positions. So this is why a, a because squatting is our prereq to our jumping, where we have to be able to squat to a certain capacity to create a stretch reflex through the lower musculature of the body to produce force and velocity from the floor, right? And the ground beneath us. So our we don't have jumping. Jumping isn't within the seven primal pattern movements because the squat is the jump. Specifically, we're just increasing velocity and increasing force output. And for people who are listening who are like, this doesn't apply to me because like I don't jump and I don't, and because I've tried to use that excuse plenty of times. But like if you use the toilet, you're squatting. Yeah. And so that application as you get older is something very important to pay attention to. And that's fantastic that you don't jump. Um, uh, I would ask you why you don't jump. Why aren't you training? No, I'm, I'm serious. Why aren't you training plyometrics? The first thing that goes as we age is our fast twitch fibers, right? That's a really important thing. Our fast twitch fibers are also the fibers that when we fall or take a fall are the things that catch us. That's not our slow twitch postural fibers, right? And one of the leading causes of uh, death past the age of 60 is falls and uh, fractures of the hip joint right. and or the femur. Mm -hmm. This no, is something that's, that's you're building it into my program and I'm doing it. I'm just not built for it. Like I, you know, like, but you're doing it right. I am doing it just because I'm not good at it. Doesn't mean I'm not working at it, but it is kind of like training a hippo to jump, which is, it's, there's just something. And it looks like that too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. I can, I'm good at other, like I can pull. Yes. You know, like I can pull and I can push. I'm working on. But the, the goal here is challenging those fast twitch fibers, which right. you are doing. And we're also doing in pulls on the floor or squats. When we have our accommodating resistance days or dynamic effort days, you are moving at higher velocities, you know, 0 0.8, 0 0.9 meters per second and above. That's the whole point of our fast switch fibers, uh, or pardon me, our dynamic effort days and our accommodating resistance days where we're moving at higher speeds and higher velocities. And so when I train, you know, to, to, when we talk about progressing and regressing things, like 
the whole plyometric area is not a strength. Whereas you can, how many, you stack like four boxes on top of each other and you can jump on top of there. I'm using the smallest box. Like it, we're, I have to regress those movements so that I can actually work on the form and eventually progress from there, progress from there. But it's, you know, like you jump over the big hurdles. I use the, the little baby hurdles and that's fine. We're just working on, I, and I know, I know how my nervous system works. I have to be comfortable doing the movement before I can do it more, you know, yeah. but we get into that fear-based, you know, issue there with strength conditioning. There's a lot behind fear and not being able to perform something. Uh, we'll touch on that on another day, but last one, twisting and rotation. Mm. This is, I think this is a really important one because we obviously are, our spine is built for rotation, but I think we tend to want to drive, we tend to want to drive mobility into areas of the spine that may not necessarily, that might not be their job. So we're asking, let's say your, your lumbar spine, that area of the spine isn't necessarily built for, built for rotation. Um, I think we need to be teaching or encouraging control of movement rather than the flexibility and looking for it because what happens is people will go into, especially in yoga, because of this, the, you know, when the, your heads drop forward, your shoulders are in, you're actually taking the spine into a little bit of forward flexion, which your spine's built for it, especially the thoracic spine. But then you're adding rotation on top of that. And that's where we tend to get into, that's a, that's an injury mechanism for the spine. Well, what you just spoke to there is that double joint action, the thoracic spines, the area of the spine that has the, allows for the greatest capacity of rotation, but it's also has the least amount of flexion. So we have, we have to be careful there. Well, and it's all relative because what is lower thoracics to be specific let's look at what comes off of your thoracic spine, your rib cage, and your rib cage is going to protect some pretty important structures. And so controlling that rotation, being strong in those movements is, is one thing, but I, Mike Boyle um, has done some great, like one of the things you and I have both taken his certification. And one of the things that you and I have both talked about having um, been really impressed with him is we have all of the materials from our certification and they are constantly updating those materials saying, this is what we know. Current research tells us this, we no longer teach this movement. And one of the movements that he was talking about is I, it's almost like those windshield wiper movements where you take, where you lie on your stomach. So your, your sake, uh, your hip is fixed to the ground and you rotate outwards, kind of like opening up like a book. Yeah, you take your one leg up and over. And he one of the things that he goes into detail and... Oh, so you're speaking to that. Okay, so pardon me. I take that back. So that would be a fixed shoulder. Yeah. And then what you're doing is you're articulating your windshield wiping. You're creating a windshield wiper action mm -hmm. with your legs and your hips. So it's the articulation to the lumbar spine rather than thoracics, right. which is what we don't necessarily want. Right. Because we, we're not looking to drive mobility into the lumbar spine. No, instead we're looking for stability. Right. And that's, but there are movements that are so like, and this one's a rough one in the yoga community is a supine twist. Yeah. Right. That one's when you're on your back and 
trainers, coaches cue this all the time, like pull. So if your right leg is bent and your left leg is straight and your right leg is coming across your body, like bring your knee towards the floor that you're trying to drive mobility into the lower lumbar spine. And that's actually not necessarily what we want to do. Is it relaxing? Are you unloaded? Yes. Is that the most effective way to teach a twist? What are you patterning? This one's, this one's an area where like, I still, I still teach it in the context of a yoga class, but I'm not going to be teaching it like to, to deepen that twist. Yeah. I mean, first off, rather than that thick shoulder and mobile hip where we're articulating back and forth in that windshield pattern, do the complete opposite, fix the hip, the ground and rotate through the shoulders. That way we're getting rotation through that thoracic spine where it's intended to rotate. And we're not flexing, obviously, if we're lying on the ground, uh, legs are bent at a 90 degree angle, they're fixed to the floor, and we're rotating through the thoracic spine. This is something I do a lot with in rotation athletes, whether it's a lacrosse player, whether it's a hockey player, whether it's a boxer or mixed martial artist or golfer, we want capacity to rotate through the thoracic spine efficiently without um, negatively impacting the lumbar spine. We see a lot of lumbar injuries, lumbar spine or vertebral column injuries in rotation sports uh, because we don't have that uh, proper connection between the upper and lower trunks and the capacity to rotate, but also the capacity to manage rotation and maintain stability and stiffness through the lower trunk. Well, you just hit on two key components that I think trainers coaches, yoga teachers need to keep in mind. What's the function of the spine first? Stability. Then once we're stable, now we can drive rotation. And it's that neutral spine controlling the rotation rather than using something passive to drive rotation, like your arms, like arms to leverage the movement different than the muscles of your core. Yeah, most definitely. So that's going through the six primal pattern movements. Again, we have gate, which we can get to on a whole other um, podcast. If that's something that everyone is interested in, we can talk about gate analysis and different postures that we're looking at there and how to train different phases of the gate cycle. Um, but they're the six big uh, movement patterns that we want to see on a daily basis, or should I say efficiency on a daily basis and unconscious control of those movement patterns. Uh, lastly, real quick, obviously when we're cueing these movements uh, or any movement in general, whether it's a new exercise, uh, there is motor learning involved, uh, we want to make sure we are able to identify a patient's um, uh, learning style. How, in what mechanism do they learn best? So we have multiple uh, indicators of learning styles. We have the verbal, linguistic, we have logical or mathematical, visual or spatial, interpersonal versus interpersonal, musical, and we also have physical and kinesthetic. So understanding the ways by which a individual learns best should be indicated and utilized when teaching these postures, teaching these movement patterns, uh, this is crucial for learning development, especially for uh, motor learning and motor patterning. So over time, these movements become unconscious. And we, once these movement patterns are unconscious, we are able to progress. And these are some of the, these are things that we don't need, need to focus 
focus on when we when we're doing more complex movement patterns. Yeah, and I think it's important for coaches, trainers, yoga teachers, all like movement professionals to be skillful and it's going to require work on our part to be able to reach our clients or students in all of these areas. Like if you cannot effectively articulate how to get someone into and through a movement, you need to work on your verbal cueing. You need to also be able to effectively do visual demos. Um, That's huge. Real quick, visual demos. So in yoga, verbal cueing should be held paramount, right? It's in most cases, yes. because te most teachers don't know how to yoga teachers specifically don't know how to verbally cue. So they resort right to visual cue. They're on their mat. They're, yeah. they're doing the practice with the class. Correct. And which to me, you shouldn't be getting paid because you're practicing with your class. Yes. From a strength conditioning perspective, it's the complete opposite. The, the problem lies in the complete opposite way or um, opposite situation is a, a lot of coaches can give verbal cues, but they can't move. They don't know how to move. Let's just use, um, a dynamic warm-up, for example. I've, I've seen so many people that call themselves coaches that prescribe things like A-skips and B-skips, but they can't A-skip or B-skip. Or they'll prescribe a crawl, which I love crawling, various um, varieties of crawls and uh, crawling specifics and progressions. But if you don't know how to crawl or you don't have the coordination to crawl or A-skip or B-skip, don't fucking program it know how to tactically cue a skip, give a visual demo, a physical visual demo, but also be able to verbally cue it, right? Yeah. These are issues that we see so commonly with coaches and yoga professionals. There's a lot around that. And that's probably, probably a, a whole separate conversation and podcast, this concept of the visual demos. So yoga is a mind, you know, we're cultivating a mind body practice. And so I actually don't necessarily want my students to mirror my pose. They actually need to be, it's, it's, it's a sense of exploration, right? Like I'm not trying to fit them into a pose. They're using the pose to explore different aspects of themselves. I think that's where we get a little bit different. If you're about to send someone into a back squat where they're going to be under load, if they're not getting the cues, then the visual that's where the visual can be very impactful. It is very important for a yoga teacher too, though, to be intentional with their visual demos. What I would challenge is you, is you as a yoga teacher, you don't go to your a hundred percent. Like you don't do the depth of the pose that you can do because there's a lot of different reasons. It's, it, 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 it gets into the realm of trauma and mental health, but like, it can be very intimidating. And I'm not asking you know, someone to do the exact pose that I'm doing different than a strength and conditioning coach. You might need to get certain principles to land visually. Um, and that's, that is an important skill to have. You have to be able to balance both, but for both, but like you as a coach, you would never be loading the bar and back squatting with me when you're coaching me. No, like that's your workout. That's another reason why a yoga teacher should not be, I would, very strongly are you, your yoga teacher should not be on their mat. And as a coach, if you're working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, if you're squatting with them, I think different than a demo, but if you're squatting with them, how are you coaching safety? Where are you going to pull me out of a lift? Because my, I haven't braced my core before going into the back squat.
Correct. Especially on an individual basis. Working in teams is a completely different thing. And that's why we have safety parameters built in place when working with the larger groups. But yeah, that's uh, kind of everything in a nutshell. I hope this was uh, helpful and I hope we articulated this information um, effectively and efficiently in in a timely manner. Uh, If anyone has any questions, you can reach us on Instagram uh, and YouTube, uh, direct message us, drop a comment. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you comment, let us know what you thought, uh, shoot us a like. And again, if you guys have any, uh, information or feedback that you'd like to give us anything that you want to hear us speak to or talk about, have conversation around, please let us know. We will also be linking, uh, two different books, uh, in the bio. Here, again, Movement That Matters and How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy by Paul Check. Uh, we will also link a neat YouTube video uh, where he talks about his systematic approach to uh, the primal pattern movements. Uh, again, Paul is a wealth of knowledge and uh, can speak uh, even more in depth than we have today, if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, and I would say if you're a yoga teacher, um, trainer, coach, like be looking for these movement patterns in working with your students and your clients, because especially in the yoga, yoga side of it, being able to coach these movements, teach some of these movement patterns would be really important. Um, But yeah, if you guys want to find out like Paul Check's approach in terms of even like his overall approach to health, definitely can shed some light there too. Um, So yeah, reach out to us. We would love to answer questions, work with work with anyone, um, get more into detail on all of this. And then we're excited. Um, the next next podcast, I think we're getting into posture. Um, yeah, desk ergonomics, office space, uh, et cetera. This has been the Primal Performance Podcast with your hosts, Chad Sheen and Melissa Hayden. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Until next time, we're out.